Welcome back to Lush Life. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. We swing back into action with a guest who is always the guy at the office who is doing whiskey tastings. I had no idea that position even existed. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Whiskey was Thomas Mooney, the co-founder of Westward Whiskey's Drink of Choice. So much so that he really was the guy who arranged whiskey tastings at the office. He thought one day he would retire and then have a whiskey distillery. But that dream became a reality sooner than he thought. But before you hear that story, I know it's dry January for some of you. But for the others, you're thinking to yourselves, what tour can grant me access to some of the most famous bars and bartenders in London, all while sipping their celebrated cocktails and learning about Soho's drinking history? Just head over to LushLifeCocktailTours.com to buy your ticket to the tastiest tour in London. Oh, and for all of you spending January dry, every bar will make a non-alcoholic beverage for your drinking pleasure as well. Now, back to Tom. Uh, I grew up in Guatemala. Uh, oh, that's a surprise. <laughs> which is, yeah, it's like you meet someone named Thomas Mooney, obviously you think you grew up in Guatemala. <laughs> especially with your accent. Exactly, especially. Oh, so were you, so you, you, some, were you born there? I was. Uh, my dad was American, but moved there in 1960 and met my mom while he was there and stayed and started a business uh, and never left. So I, I grew up there. Uh, I lived there until I went to university. What kind of business was it? Uh, a lending business. Uh, it was a really cool. Uh, he would lend to non-traditional agricultural growers who couldn't borrow from banks because they were doing things that were a little riskier or more speculative. Uh, and so you know, it, it helped actually. He was sp- way before his time. Uh, yeah, micro lending. Where, and where, all where, that. where is he now for my business? I- <laughs> uh, we can't borrow from banks, but we could have borrowed from them. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it was part of transforming the economy of Guatemala from a very traditional sort of coffee growing economy uh, to higher yield, sort of better wage crops. Uh, it was a really cool business. Fantastic. Were there lots of Americans around? No. Uh, in fact, I, I went to the American school uh, where I was one of only three U.S. citizens in my class of about 100 uh, so no, it, it wasn't. There wasn't a really big expat population. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, of Americans or people from anywhere else. That was, that is so cool. And so when you, I'm sorry, when did you say that you moved to the states? Uh, I moved to the United States in 1988 to go to university at uh, at Purdue in Indiana. And uh, but yeah, I lived in Guatemala until then. And so what was it like your first kind of weeks in Indiana? Uh, it was it was different. Uh, I mean, I grew up in a fairly large city. Uh, Purdue is in West Lafayette, which is a small town in mm-hmm. Northwest Indiana. Uh, yeah, so I, I think there was a, an adjustment process to being you know in a much smaller place. Uh, at the same time, I mean, I was eighteen and sharing a small town with thirty thousand other kids my age in the college. Away from so, the parents, you know. Yeah, so, so oh. it was fun. <laughs> it was too much fun. Well, do you remember, I'm sure you do, um, 
kind of the drinking culture in Guatemala when you were, you know, I'm sure there yeah. was no drinking age, at um, least, at least not like 21. Yeah. When I was growing up in Guatemala there, I mean, there was a drinking age. It was 18. There was also no enforcement of it. Uh, and in fact, culturally, that drinking age wasn't really a factor. Uh, I mean, That's Gua- what I meant. Or Guatemala is yeah. like many places in Latin America where, um, for example, girls, when they turn 15, have a big party. Um, so I guess in the U.S. it's Sweet 16. Mm-hmm. And in Latin America, it's Quinceañera, which is 15 years old. And and so we would go to parties that were hosted by the families. And you, you wear a suit. It's a formal ball. It's like It's a very civilized affair but you're 15 years old and you're sitting at a table where there's a bottle of johnny walker black that's there for you to enjoy with your friends whiskey that, that was served whiskey. by the girl's parents uh-huh. uh which in hindsight seems really bizarre i mean i obviously i'm a whiskey maker and uh-huh. i offer people enjoying whiskey uh but i you know i now have a son who's 14 and I have no plans of serving him a bottle of Westward whiskey when he turns 15, so I don't want anybody else doing that either. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it was it was different then. Mm. Um, and it was, I mean, in terms of what people enjoyed, uh, it was both a rum and a malt whiskey culture. Uh, and so those were really the two kind of staple spirits, uh, which obviously are very different from each other, but... I think more depending on the occasion. Sometimes people drank rum, sometimes people mm-hmm. drank scotch. Did you miss it when you went to university? Well, I just... No, well, I don't know anybody who's ever been to university who couldn't find alcohol if that's huh. what they were looking for. So, <laughs> so I think what was shocking to me was... I mean, not unlike sort of prohibition, right? That when you take something that is acceptable Mm -hmm. culturally and you make it illegal then you create a black market and all sorts of really bizarre behavior uh so i mean there was alcohol everywhere uh and i mean in any other country we would have been old enough to buy it and enjoy it right uh but but yeah it it just listen my dad he's not going to get in trouble now i don't think but he used to buy us jugs of kalua And beer. Yeah, okay. So so, so if we're going there, uh, yes, my dad would come to visit, and he was the most popular dad at my dorm because we would go to the 21st Amendment liquor store in Lafayette uh, and, you know, stock up because that's when we could do it. I guess we had good dads in our our eyes, but um, uh, so... I know that I I know I did, too. Um, Now, that love of whiskey, I guess, was... um, kind of put aside as you went through university and you know what were you studying there well no I was always the weirdo in you know college who liked scotch so I mean I never stopped liking it ah sorry Um, excuse my assumption yeah Uh, I if anything sort of college introduced beer to my life because as strange as it sounds beer was very very expensive in Guatemala so young people didn't drink beer it was like too premium Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, you could get a decent bottle of rum for you know about two dollars or two pounds, uh, and it probably would have cost five times that to buy a six pack of beer. So yeah, beer wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. It was in college. 
<laughs> they had beer. So you obviously didn't study beer, beer drinking in college. So what, what did you go there to study? Yeah, well, I, I went there to learn how to be a whiskey distiller in the future. I just didn't know that's what I was doing. Uh, yeah, no, I, I got a degree in engineering uh, and uh, in industrial engineering specifically. So, uh, so a lot of you know, things related to manufacturing and the science of developing things and producing them. So where did you go from there after college? Uh, I... Did not go into engineering, uh, and so I, at that point I thought, yeah, I really enjoyed engineering school, but I thought I was done with technical things and making things. Uh, and so my first job out of college was with Procter and Gamble uh, in marketing uh, or brain management. Uh, so I, I, one of my sisters worked at P and G, and I knew she was really happy, and I approached the company and. Met with them first in Cincinnati at their headquarters and then uh, ended up you know, getting an offer and being given the choice of either working in Cincinnati or going back to Latin America uh, to you know, with the company, but to a very different kind of experience. You know, Cincinnati would have been very established, very corporate, um, you know, more of a you know, one step mm-hmm. at a time kind of career progression. Uh, they offered me the opportunity to go back to Guatemala, where I had grown up, uh, and where P&G had entered the market only three years before that. Uh, so it was you know, within a $30 billion global company. It was a startup subsidiary and a completely different environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, something no, nobody could have ever walked in there and thought, you know, this is one of the largest companies in the world, uh, which I really enjoyed. So it was it was a lot of fun. I, think I, I chose wisely. And what kind of things were you doing marketing for? Uh, my very first assignment was to start up P&G's laundry detergent business uh, in sort of in all of Central America. Uh, so <laughs> it was so awesome. I mean, it was fun career-wise because that's P&G's biggest business and you know, not many people ever get to start P&G's biggest business in the country. Right. Uh, there are only so many countries so, and there are only and so many And to be times. so young doing uh, this. Yeah. Well, the good news is I was so young that I didn't know what I didn't know. <laughs> uh, so I you know, wasn't inhibited by my lack of experience or knowledge uh-huh. because when you're 22, you're immortal and you know, infallible. And super enthusiastic. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was kind of cool because we, I mean, we, we didn't really have market research or any sort of classic kind of information that you would base a launch strategy on or a marketing strategy on. So uh, so it was just to kind of roll your sleeves up and go learn about the market. Uh, got, <laughs> seems kind of funny, but Guatemala is a... So there are two kinds of laundry detergent markets in the world. You have machine wash and hand wash markets. Okay. Uh, and they're vastly different behaviorally, and the products are very different for the two. So Guatemala is a hand wash, like very traditional market. Uh, so, I mean, I spent many hours of many days like, in a river talking to ladies, doing the wash for their towns, like just finding out, you know, what they need in a laundry detergent and how they do things. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, it was it was really cool because it was really connecting with the most traditional part of culture in Guatemala and then other parts of Central America uh, to bring a product that 
you know, it seems it's so uh-huh. mundane in developed countries that you don't even think about it. You go to the store, you buy it, you put it in the machine, your clothes are clean. Like this right, is course. a big part of life mm-hmm. in, you know, in a lot of countries is making clothes clean. Like, I love it. Uh, and it's, it's a huge part of sort of where people's self-esteem comes from, of mm-hmm. having clothes that look nice, that are clean. Uh, and so that, I mean, that was really the biggest insight is we weren't selling, you know, a stain removal product. We were offering something that helped people have more self-esteem because they had nicer things that looked better. And so they felt better. Um, and so you obviously took to marketing. Yeah, Did yeah, you? it was fun. I mean, I'd never yeah. worked in marketing in my life. Um, and it was a ton of fun. So did you just want to stay in Guatemala forever? I mean, what took you back to the U.S.? Um, well, I, not unlike, you know, my dad moved to Guatemala for what he thought was going to be a brief period of time, met my mother, who's from there, and stayed. Uh, at PNG, I met my wife, um, you know, now of almost 25 years, uh, who also worked at PNG, but she was in Colombia, in Bogota. Uh, and we we worked together on the project, uh, and then within a year we were married. Uh, and so one of us was going to move to the other one's country, uh, and I was offered a really nice opportunity to grow within PNG by moving to Colombia. Uh, so I moved there, uh, and so we lived in Bogota for almost two years. Uh, and then at that point, an opportunity came up to move to the United States to work at Kellogg. Uh, in Michigan uh, for both of us. So we both moved and that's when we first went to the United States. Was was it tough leaving South America? No. uh, I mean, you know, I I lived my whole life minus, you know, four years in Indiana Mm -hmm. and Latin America. And I mean, it was formative, but I was ready to do something different. On to the next adventure. Yeah. So I think it was more exciting than... And difficult. So, what product did you move from? From I mean, to move to after living uh, with so at detergent. Ke- yeah, at Kellogg. Uh, <laughs> well, once you've done detergents, nothing ever you know. And you can up. never go back. Yeah, you can never <laughs> reach that level of excitement. And, yeah. um, no, I at P uh, sorry at Kellogg. I worked on an innovation team, uh, so it was new product development, um, really across a range of food categories. Um, so it was not big brands that already, you know, existed or were known, but but it was creating the brands of the future. Um, a lot of it was very technical uh, because, I mean, food is, like we often don't think about that, but uh, it was developing new types of food or, or finding ways to make food more nutritious. Uh, so there was a big food science part of it, but then you know, that none of that matters if you can't market it. So a big marketing component as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think in, you know, in marketing, the, the most complete discipline of all is new product development, because you have to deal with everything from the original idea to design to overcoming you know, technology barriers or production barriers to finding ways to make things in, you know, at a good cost all the way to then, you know, telling the world that they should really want something that until yesterday they didn't even know existed and now they must have it. Uh, mm-hmm. So it really is the whole gamut of, you know, from idea to making something part of people's lives. 
Did you do that for any specific beverage? You know, did you had you moved into the drinks yet? No, no. My yeah, my drinks industry experience would come still a few years in the future. Uh, this was all food. All food. Mm-hmm. And then where where did you go from there after Kellogg? Uh, I went to business school at Harvard. Uh, and so I was there from 1999 to 2001. Uh, it was the greatest experience ever. It was so much fun. Um, uh, did you think that you were going to continue in marketing? I, I wasn't really sure what, what I was going to do. And I mean, candidly, the, the way business school applications work, they ask you questions that demand that you precisely know what you're going to do the rest of your life. But I don't think anybody really goes to business school if they have that answer. Because if you have that answer, then you would just go do, do, it. do the thing you said you're going to do and save yourself a lot Make of money. whiskey. Right. Right. Uh, so, yes, had I you know, had, I had uh, the foresight, <laughs> then you know, I could have saved a lot of money. But, uh, but no, I mean, being, being at Harvard was one of the great experiences of my life. And... Uh, and specific, I mean, the friends I made who are still like, there's almost no city I go to in the world where there isn't somebody I can write to before going there and saying, hey, I'm going to be there you know, this week. I'm going to be in London the week of December 2nd. You know, I'd love to see you. Uh, I have 14 classmates in London and, you know, whenever we can get together, mm-hmm. we do. So, so it really is, it was a two year wonderful experience, but a whole lifetime of being part of a community uh, that, that is really fun to stay connected with. Uh, Do you think and, that when you came out of it, you um, wanted to stay in the corporate world, or do you think it taught you a little bit more entrepreneurial skills? Uh, I was always, I don't know if I realized it at the time, but I was always headed toward more entrepreneurial um, lands. Uh, you know, I, I realized every every place I've ever worked was smaller than the last place I worked. Huh. Uh, and I've never in my life... Who would say PG to Kellogg, yeah, I've right? Never, <laughs> I've never had a situation where I went to work at a place that's bigger than, where, than uh-huh. any place I ever used to be. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, that's now clear to me at my age, but mm. it, as it was happening, it wasn't really that clear. Um, I left uh, business school to go to a consulting firm, and I, I did some management consulting work for about two years. Uh, I left that to go work for uh, what was at that time an agricultural company in Los Angeles called Roll International, that then changed its name to Roll Global, that then changed its name to the wonderful company. But um, but it was you know primarily uh, a a husband and wife owned family that grew almonds and pistachios in California. And the reason I went to work for them was, you know, a, a sort of internal strategy group that they had to, where I could bring a lot of the experience I had and work with you know, different parts of their company. And I mean, it was just really salt of the earth, like mm-hmm. agricultural business. And and then one day, uh, which you know, I guess in hindsight changed my life, but I didn't realize it at the time, uh, the, the couple who owns this company met the founder of Fiji Water. And he, his name was David Gilmore. And David was ready to sell Fiji Water, and he didn't want to sell it to a large company. Uh, and so he got 
you know, Linda and Stuart Resnick, who I worked for, interested in Fiji. And uh, because of the role I had with their company, I ended up working on, you know, the due diligence and ultimate you know, deal team to help them buy the company. And then after that, I was the first person from sort of the acquiring company to move over to Fiji uh, as the chief marketing officer. Uh, and so I spent the next five years or so uh, as the head of marketing for Fiji uh, and then also sort of worked in some sales uh, roles in that. Uh, and that was really my first experience in the beverage industry. Uh, and one, and I think the the most formative professional experience I've ever had. I mean, I I was mentioning to someone this week, you know, there literally is not a day that goes by that I don't use something I learned in those five years uh, or that I'm not working with someone who I met or worked with during those five years. Uh, so that really was the the beginning of everything that, you know, that has followed through you know, Westward Whiskey today. And while you were gaining all of this experience, uh, were you still drinking whiskey? Uh, you know, how did your whiskey loving evolve? Oh, heck yeah. I, I was always the guy at the office who would do the whiskey tastings uh, because people you know, loved whiskey in general, but didn't really have the time or inclination to go educate themselves on it. By the way, I love how you said that. Because I don't know any other office where there's a guy doing whiskey tasting. Like, you're the I, guy at the I office. Thought, I doing... thought there was a guy at every office. Or <laughs> no, I mean, there isn't. Or not a guy. You are, yeah, they were lucky, anyone. you know, it, wherever you worked. That, yeah, that was, company was lucky. They had a guy who did yeah, the whiskey well, tasting. Yeah, I guess since I've always worked in an office that has a guy who does the whiskey tastings. Because <laughs> you I, were that I, guy. I thought everybody had. All right, no. So how did you know which whiskeys to choose? Was it different every week? How often did you do these whiskey tastings? I want to know everything. I think we probably did something every month. Uh, very heavily oriented toward malt whiskey. Uh, again, because that's what I had grown up with and uh-huh. probably knew the most about. Uh, but, you know, we'd weave in a few things to like contrast you know, malts with bourbon. Uh, one of my favorite tricks was always to put some cognac in the blind tasting uh, because people who love whiskey claim that they don't drink cognac but if you give cognac to most whiskey drinkers they love it uh and so what they have is they think they don't like the category but they love the products uh and so more often than not you know somebody's favorite whiskey is cognac well where would you do research about the whiskeys and the cognacs to choose um i mean wherever i could books um you know the internet okay i I lived at a time when there wasn't the internet. Right? <laughs> like, the books. That's mind-blowing to my kids. They think the internet was invented <laughs> in the 1300s. Yeah. Of course, um, Gutenberg's internet. But there was always the internet. Okay. Like, what do you mean there wasn't the internet? Uh, so yeah, books, uh, friends. Um, but but yeah, you know, in hindsight, you know, now that I'm a whiskey maker, like I wish I knew then the things I know now. I could have yeah. made the tastings even Don't more interesting. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but it was fun. So now you've got to get to when the worlds collided with right. you so and I, Christian. Right. Because I always, you know, as the official guy who does the whiskey tastings at the office, you know, I had this thought that, you know, I'll just keep having normal jobs and eventually save enough money to retire. And then when I do, wouldn't it be cool to be a whiskey distiller? 
But just as a, okay, I'm done with a career. It's time to just go do something fun. And wait, when did that first, when did that you start first thinking that? Oh, I mean, by the time I was at Fiji Water, for sure. Okay. Um, you know, that just seemed like a really good plan. Uh, they just go... I guess I always thought of whiskey as a very rural thing. So if you had asked me then, I mean, I would have imagined like some sort of farm and there's a still and, you know, very... And they're okay. growing the grain, they have the yeah, water, it all happens there, right? Yeah, that whole thing. Like, who knew you can make whiskey in the city? Right. right. Um, so, yeah, it was always something that was an interest, but, but I mean, I really didn't have a path. Like, okay, so I want to do that and I know more than the average bear about whiskey, but that doesn't mean I can just go make whiskey. Um, and so, yeah, that, that all changed uh, in 2009 uh, when I met Christian. And so, you know, what had happened leading up to that was, you know, my, I mean, as formative and amazing as my Fiji experience was, I felt that, you know, I'd gotten about as much out of it as I was going to. And and that you know, Fiji had gotten about as much as it was going to for me. So it was a good time to think about what's next. Uh, and one of my business school friends uh, and classmates was the founder of a tequila company, uh, Milagro. And so he and two university friends had started Milagro you know, then, I guess, 10 years before, 15 years before. Uh, his name is Arturo Litwack. And so Arturo and I decided, you know, he worked with his family on the real estate business, you know, I was at Fiji. And so we decided it'd be fun to start a business together. And, you know, we had both worked in premium beverages, you know, him with Milagro, me with Fiji. Uh, we both felt that we shared an understanding of how to build a luxury drinks brand. Uh, we also were convinced that we had no idea how to make anything. So we needed to find somebody who could. Um, and so on a whim, we we sent an email to Jim Cook, the founder of Boston Beer, Sam Adams, mm -hmm. uh, who went to Harvard Business School. So it was, you know, we, you can kind of guess people's email address just from the, the way. It's like, all right, you know, Jay Cook at MBA, whatever, uh, hbs.edu. So like much to our amazement, he wrote back the same day. Like, yes, I would be happy to talk to you and give you advice. And you know what? What kind of business are you guys thinking of starting? Uh, so we spoke with Jim for about an hour. He asked us to please stay out of the beer business because there are too many people in it. <laughs> and he said, "Yes, I'm being selfish, but I'm just saying." Like, all right, got it. Uh, but he he was really the first person who pointed us toward craft spirits uh, and said, "Look, it's not." exactly the same situation but i see things happening in the spirits industry that are very similar to the world when i started boston beer uh, and if that's the way it plays out you know there's an opportunity for people who know how to run a business and can really take a great product and scale it and turn it into a great brand uh, and so what you guys need to do is you know go out there uh, find someone who knows how to make great products and spirits, uh, but they need to be already in business because there needs to be some traction and some evidence that, you know, this wasn't, you know, one batch that turned out really nicely, but, you know, this is really somebody who's exceptional at, at making great products. Uh, and it needs to be somebody who wants new partners because they're going to need to let you in and, you know, be part of the business. 
And so we thought, oh, this is fantastic. You know, we just got the whole playbook. Uh, and then we sat and thought about it for a while and realized, like, okay, so we need to find someone who's already in business, who makes great products with traction and actually wants us as partners. Right, wants to work with you, right? right. Okay, okay that <laughs> sounds like it might be the Venn diagram of zero, but yeah, <laughs> let's give it a shot. And so in 2009, I went to Portland, Oregon to the Great American Distillers Festival, which at the time, you know, the, the American craft spirits community was so small that actually most of the craft spirits community was in one ballroom. Uh, you could fit it all you know, at the Bossa Nova Ballroom in Portland. Uh, and I literally went table to table, uh, just learning about each brand, meeting the founder, talking about sort of their plans. Uh, and then I got to Christian's table. Uh, and, you know, that, that was the first time we connected. And as it turned out, you know, Christian had for years been making fantastic products. You know, he... This was 09, so he had started you know, the original, what was then House Spirits Distillery in 2004, but had been you know, working on it a little bit before that. So you know, he'd been doing this for a while. Uh, he was generally regarded as you know, really a luminary in terms of, sort of innovation and quality. Uh, and he was in the middle of a really bad breakup with his original business partner. So like, oh my God. <laughs> So we found someone who's already in business, makes a great product, has a track record, and wants new partners. Mm-hmm. All right, this sounds good. Uh, and and so we spent the next God, almost year and a half, um, you know, talking about working together. And you know, he didn't want to rush into new partners when you know the original partnership hadn't ended well. And we wanted to make sure that this was really the right thing for us and for everybody. Uh, and then, I mean, more importantly, whatever we did was going to cost more money than we had. So we needed to find some investors to back it. Uh, and so it took about a year and a half to to really create the framework of all of us as partners and bringing in some outside investment. Uh, and so in June of 2011, we finally officially signed all the documents Uh, at a restaurant in Portland called Clyde Common that's famous for being one of the innovators of the barrel-aged cocktail. So we figured, like, we could go to our lawyer's office or we could actually go somewhere fun and spend all afternoon signing documents. So we chose fun. Now, was Westward already, you know, in the barrel? Was it an idea? So Westward existed, uh, but it existed in the form of 12 barrels, against one wall at the distillery. Uh, and that's all there was. Uh, we have a really fantastic picture from that era of us and the first two people we hired after that standing in front of our barrels. Had you, Just, did you, I assume you tasted it. Oh yeah, no, no, and, and, and I mean, this was part of the, okay, we found someone who makes a great product. And you loved it. Um, you know, the distillery made a few different things, but I mean, the whiskey was exceptional. And, mm-hmm. and so it was something that we realized would be a much longer term proposition because, you know, the 12 barrels still needed a little aging and we were going to need more than 12 barrels to build a brand. <laughs> uh, so, but I mean, but it was really the beginning of I think, all of us collectively embarking on, you know, this westward journey. And, uh, and so we spent the next three years making as much whiskey as we could 
uh, which meant that we increased our inventory from 12 barrels to 163 barrels. (laughs) Uh, Super, super, super premium. I mean, if you think of what percent growth that is, it's massive. Uh, and, uh, And so then we realized, okay, this is... Like in our lifetime, we're never going to build this brand if we're only able to produce this much. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so in what was you know really one of the defining moments for us, we we decided to build a new distillery, uh, still in Portland, uh, and we we really decided. I mean, we we wanted something much bigger where we could, you know, increase production to our target was one thousand two hundred barrels a year. Um, you know, when we'd been making, you know, one or two barrels on the, you know, in a good month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we went back to our original investor group and they were excited about the idea. And so we began planning for it in 2013 or maybe early 2014. Uh, eventually built it in 2015 uh, and moved in and, you know, have since been you know, producing. So now we have 4,228 barrels as of yesterday, uh, which, you know, it's still, you know, there are more barrels than people in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, Kentucky is nervous about our growth. Um, Scotland can, you know, be reassured as well that you know, we're not going to take anybody out. Um, but, it, you know, we finally have enough product that we can go out to the world and build a brand. So we, you know, we finally gave it a name uh, seven years ago. Uh, and so Westward, you know, th- those barrels against the wall became Westward American Single Malt Whiskey at that time. We had so little that we only sold it in our tasting room uh, and we would put it in really little bottles uh, so that it was, you know, a bad value proposition because, you know, if it had been a good value proposition, we would have run out right away. Uh, and then, you know, as we had a little more inventory, you know, we eventually put it in uh, you know, a full size bottle. But it really wasn't until three years ago that we began to distribute that. uh, And it wasn't until the last year that we finally took Westward outside the U.S. Uh, So, you know, for us, we've been on this journey, you know, for a very long time. Uh, For, you know, for most of the world, it feels like, you know, this is something relatively new to the world. Uh, because most people in most places have only finally seen it for the first time over the last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our our sales over, let's say, our sales this year are more than the combined sales of every year going back to the original launch of Westward. So, and, and next year, the same statement will be true. So, so really, every year, most people who enjoy Westward will have enjoyed it for the first time because uh, it just wasn't there for them before. Uh, so it's exciting because we've we've had all of these things happening in the background, and we're finally at that point where you know everything comes out of the shadows and you, you can know, start we, screaming about it. Yeah, and we can uh-huh. really you know instead of trying to suppress demand on purpose, uh, which right. was kind of bizarre, uh, we you know now now there is enough for everybody who wants it. Uh, so we you know we can be out there talking about it. Well, let's talk about the whiskey itself. Mm-hmm. Well, you said you thought of, well, the name Westward came to be, um, not at the beginning. Well, why did you decide on that name? Uh, we, when, when we first began thinking about, you know, our whiskey, we, we wanted to do something that really embodied 
you know, our home in the Northwest and the place westward comes from. And, you know, some some people know the American Northwest well. Many have not been there or don't fully understand it. Uh, it's it's a majestic place. You know, it's it's a place that was you know, raised out of the water by giant volcanic eruptions and that was shaped by the largest floods in you know, prehistoric time. And you know, it has volcanoes that still erupt, uh, you know, one that blew up a few decades ago. Uh, everything about it is big and bold and you know, awesome. And, you know, and it's also in terms of human history you know, with you know, the American West, the, the destination of the largest migration in history. Right? And, and it was a migration entirely driven by the belief that, you know, if you leave everything behind and you go westward, you can go create whatever future you want. Like it, you know, it's very inspiring to us because from the very first settlers of, you know, the Oregon Territory then, now Oregon, to to people who came to Portland last week, you know, people left wherever they came from and went there with a dream and, you know, they they've arrived to build something new. Uh, and so we, I mean, we felt that that spoke to what we were trying to do. Uh, and it certainly celebrates, you know, the history of, of the place where we make whiskey. Uh, so, I mean, the, the name came from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really everything else, you know, everything about the product itself, the whiskey itself is, you know, is that same sort of, um, you know, celebration of, of the American Northwest and of Oregon. We... You know, we make single malt whiskey because barley is our grain. Like that's, you know, that's what grows, you know, in in that old Oregon territory, including, you know, right outside of Portland. Uh, it's two row barley. It's, you know, the, the highest quality barley in North America that historically had gone into craft beer, uh, you know, is right there. Like it, that's what you drive through when you drive across the Northwest. Uh, we... Because Oregon is such a great brewing culture, you know, we have um, a lot of malting expertise. You know, the, the malting we work with is less than five miles from the distillery. They're spectacular. Uh, so we had, you know, our regional grain. We had our local malt. Uh, and and we went into it with, I would say, a, a brewer's mentality or philosophy, which, uh, you know, people who make beer will understand. It's you know, making great beer is hard. Like, you know, whiskey sounds super awesome and, you know, wine is so fancy, but uh, making great beer, uh, well, at least we think and a lot of the people we think, is the hardest thing there is to do. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't just make a wash to distill into our whiskey. You know, we make an American-style craft pale ale that we distill into whiskey. And everything about how we treat, you know, the grain that comes in and how we brew it, how we use, uh, you know, an ale yeast, uh, the Chico strain. So it's a traditional American pale ale yeast to produce, you know, really fruity floral esters and all the things that make a pale ale amazing. Uh, you know, we don't put hops in it, but other than that, it's we're making great pale ale. Uh, we're simply doing it for the purpose of distilling into whiskey and uh, and so we'll often talk about you know what we do as minimalism or you know, minimalist distilling in that you know we don't add anything we don't rush anything 
We use great grain, we ferment it slowly, we use more expensive yeast that has a lower yield but produces a lot more flavor. You know, we distill in low reflux pot stills that keep all that great flavor in. Um, you know, it's just, it, it, I guess, maybe like the slow food equivalent of whiskey making. Just good ingredients, treat them right, take your time. You know, it, you'll end up with something really bold and flavorful and amazing. And you've been um, awarded for this process. So yeah, create I mean, some we, delicious whiskey. Right. You know, we, I mean, we always thought it was pretty good, but uh, we're not objective. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so course. when, uh, yes, when, when others agreed with us, it was, uh, it was cause for celebration. So yeah, Westward uh, won a double gold medal at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, uh, the most recent one, uh, making it, you know, the highest rated American single malt whiskey. Uh, and, but we think it's, it's even more than that. I mean, we, we think it is, one, I think we really nailed it in terms of creating this whiskey of the elements of, of the American Northwest and, and something that brings to life, you know, the, the culture and people and climate uh, of where we make the whiskey. Uh, but, but also, yeah, it, it, it's delicious. <laughs> I mean, which ultimately, you know, whiskey shouldn't feel like hard work. Like, you know, you're, we, we always remember that, you know, while we're aware of how much effort and how much time it took for something to end up in a bottle, uh, you know, the person who's going to love it is, is at the other end of the spectrum. They're, you know, it's time to wind down from, you know, their own version of what they've worked really hard for and have struggled for. And now it's time for them to celebrate, you know, their day with a little glass of Westward. Um, well, that so sounds we, like a we good idea. It fun. It sounds like a good idea to yeah, me. Should, should, we, should we go have a, have a sip, I hope? Let's, All right, let's have let's a drink. After the interview, Tom was telling me about the new Westward Whiskey Expressions that you can only get at the distillery in Portland. I knew you'd want to hear this. So are, are you playing with any other expressions of your whiskeys? We, we have a number of really interesting projects in the works. Uh, and they're, they're all based on the idea that, you know, bringing that unique culture of the American Northwest and of Oregon to life uh, can be a lot of different things. Uh, and, and so in particular, uh, for example, we were working on two expressions of Westward that are collaborations with uh, fellow producers in Oregon. Uh, one is going to be an Oregon stout cask finished westward, uh, and I'll sort of share a little bit about it in a minute. Uh, and then the other one is an Oregon Pinot Noir finish uh, product, uh, both of which you know we've we've already put in our tasting rooms in small quantities to to just get some feedback from people who visit us, uh, and you know both of which have performed sensationally so so we know these will be extensions to the brand within the next year uh stout cask will come first uh and that you know that really is comes from a long tradition that we have of sharing barrels with breweries uh, across oregon uh and the way it works is you know we have a barrel of westward that is mature and ready to bottle uh we empty the barrel you know bottle that whiskey uh, and then we'll give that barrel to a brewery uh, to make their stout for that season. Uh, and so the barrel will leave us for you know six to twelve months, depending on the timeline for the brewery. 
uh, they'll make their stout, they'll release it, you know, we get to go to the party, it's fun. Uh, and, uh, and then once their stout is released, they send the barrel back to us. Really? Uh, and then we fill it with mature westward from a future barrel uh, and then leave it there somewhere between six and 12 months. And so in that additional time, you know, we have a fully mature barrel of westward that then gets this, you know, really beautiful, amazing layer of flavor that is you know, chocolatey and um, just delicious. Oh, my, it sounds divine, both uh, the beer yeah, and the whiskey. It's good. Uh, mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, it's better than good. Uh, and so we we first launched this in Oregon in our home market this year, uh, which we wanted a very controlled launch because we had no idea what percent of our total business it was going to be. Uh, and it's really hard to plan production if you have no clue what's going to happen. Uh, and we don't, we're not fans of purposefully, you know, running out of product to, you know, get people excited when it comes back in stock. Like, hey, if you like our brand, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be able to get it. Uh, and so we found that, you know, even at a pretty significant price premium, it's 21% of brand volume. So that was really good in terms of, you know, growing the brand it was really bad in terms of supply because mm-hmm. <laughs> that meant that if we're going to launch it in other markets we mm-hmm. needed more than we had at that moment uh, so it wasn't until the end of uh, this year that we expanded that to new york and california in the u.s uh, and you know our plan is then to put uh, Westward Stout Cask in you know, the rest of our markets in the U.S. Uh, early in 2020, uh, and then to also make it available in the U.K. and in Australia. Uh, and so with that, it'll be in most of the markets where you know, people can enjoy our flagship expression, um, and it'll live side by side with it. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a really wonderful product in its own right, and you know, again, a celebration of you know, one of the world's great brewing cultures mm-hmm. in, in Oregon. Uh, and I mean, who, who doesn't like a nice stout? So uh, it, it pairs very nicely with that too. Uh, and then Westward uh, Oregon Pinot finish is, um, I mean, a similar story. Uh, it, it's a little less convoluted because barrels don't go back and forth as much. Uh, but Oregon is one of the world's uh, premier Pinot Noir growing regions. Of course, yeah. Uh, and we have you know, some really spectacular wineries, uh, some of whom are good friends of ours. And so at harvest, we will take barrels uh, that had been used uh, for Pinot Noir, uh, and then we fill them with mature westward as well, uh, give those anywhere between six to eight, nine months. Uh, and, you know, and again, we get this delicious... You know, wonderful additional complexity and flavor from from the wine. Uh, that is uh, a product that we want to have in the market by next year as well. Uh, that we have not sold in the U.S. yet, but uh, we'll make it a concurrent uh, world launch you know, once once it's available. Which, but you have to go to the distillery. So, some we have to go out to Portland to try it. Uh, if somebody and came, everyone should. Yeah, if somebody, uh, well, absolutely everybody should come to the Westward Distillery in Portland. But you know, even if you can't, we forgive you. Uh, you know, it's not on the way to most places, uh, but it is right in the center of a great city. Uh, and uh, but but yeah, no, if if somebody can't make it out to visit us in the next year, uh, we we will eventually you know come visit you with. 
uh, you know, Westwood American Single Malt, as well as the Oregon Stout Cask and Oregon Pinot Noir finished products. Fantastic. That makes me thirsty for a cocktail. So a big thank you to Tom for sharing his story. I can't wait to head out to Portland. But first, it's time for our Cocktail of the Week. We begin the year with a classic American cocktail with a French name, the Boulevardier. Think Negroni, but replace the gin with American whiskey. So we have sweet vermouth, Campari, and whiskey. Supposedly a man named Erskine Gwynne, an American, who whilst living in Paris in the 1920s, founded a magazine called Boulevardier. The authors published in his popular magazine drank as good as they could write. Hemingway, Joyce, and Noel Coward, to name just a few. Today, we have a take on the classic Boulevardier recipe from Will Meredith, head bartender of award-winning London bar Lioness. He calls it the Crystal Garden Boulevardier. He builds it with three ingredients in a glass with ice. 45 mLs of Westward whiskey, 20 mLs of basil bitter, and 20 mLs of peach stone aperitif. Stir, and then garnish with a grapefruit slice. To learn Will's inspiration for the cocktail and how to make the basil bitter and the peach stone aperitif, you'll have to visit my website where you can find this recipe plus more whiskey recipes and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. I don't know how they did it. Those 1920s writers like Hemingway and Joyce, how did they drink and then create? I'm happy to say that I will never know, as I am a two-drink broad. Two drinks, and I am under that table. And no one needs to ever be under that table. So although I'm not a dry Januaryer, I think it's good to check in with yourself every so often. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Our fabulous theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is and always will be forever produced by Evo Terror and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to reiterate the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, that second part was mine. Next week, we'll be here in London meeting with a man who went from paradise lost to paradise found on a cruise ship on the other side of the world. Until that time, bottoms up. (laughs) 